Now, our morning series in James has uh, now become our evening series in James, at least apparently for a week or two, and we're reading this evening at the end of James chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27. So, James chapter 1, and you'll find James after Hebrews on page 12. 13. Although if you're using the church Bible, you'll notice that 1213 doesn't have a number because where you begin a new chapter, you don't have a page number. That is apparently a long publishing tradition. So, let's hear God's Word from James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I've always loved the title, although I've never bothered to read the book for fairly obvious reasons, of the work written by the famous Isaac Walton in the 17th century. interesting man who wrote many biographies of many 17th century people, but alongside being a biographer, he was also an angler. And he wrote a book entitled The Complete Angler, spelt C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, The Complete Angler. And I always think about that book, although I've never read it, when I open this little letter of James, which, like you, I have read frequently. Because I think if we were looking for a suitable title for James, we might call it The Complete Believer. Indeed, he uses that kind of language right at the very beginning of the letter, when he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, stick at it, he is saying in the Christian life, that you may be perfect, that is to say, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And I'm sure one of the things that you've noticed in working through the first chapter of James is that he deals with some very basic principles of living a mature Christian life. He speaks about the importance of trials. He speaks about the importance of having wisdom, or if you lack wisdom, knowing how to get wisdom from God. He speaks about overcoming temptation, and he speaks about how we respond to the Word of God. And uh, you'll have noticed how he emphasizes the role of the Word of God in us becoming believers. We are brought forth. We are born again through the Word of God. God ordinarily uses the instrument of the gospel Word 
in order to awaken us, in order to breathe life into us, just as the Lord Jesus' word to Lazarus raised him into new life from his death. So, the Word of God in the power of the Spirit brings us to new birth, and as he goes on to say, it is through that Word of God that our lives are more and more transformed. Now, if James was anything, he was a preacher. And although he had not read another 17th century document that some of us know called the Directory for the Public Worship of God, which was written in the 17th century by the same people that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and much else, there is a section in that document on preaching, which James might have read. And in that document on preaching, those wise scholars and ministers said, it is often in preaching requisite, that is important and helpful, to give notes of trial. Notes of trial. Now, none of the preachers in St. Peter's, at least in my hearing, have ever said, and now fourthly, some notes of trial. So, what on earth are notes of trial, and why are they so helpful? Well, notes of trial are indications to us how we may know that we have experienced this. If, I, if I've been born again through the, the living Word of God, how do I know that I have been born again? What would, be, what would be the byproducts and the effects of being born again? And in a sense, as James comes to the end of this section in his letter or his sermon, in a sense, it really is, he is giving these readers notes of trial indications as to how they may know that they are, they are resisting temptation, how they may know that the Word of God is taking real effect on their lives, how they may know that they are truly religious. Now, most of us don't use that word about ourselves. In fact, probably most of us don't like using that word about ourselves. What, what we, we might uh, dynamically translate this as might be real Christian. If anyone thinks he is a real Christian, because verse 27, real Christianity, that's the kind of language we use, and it's what James is talking about. If anyone thinks he or she is a real Christian and doesn't do this, then their real Christianity is false. And then in the next verse, real Christianity is pure and undefiled before God. It's this. It's visiting orphans and widows in their afflictions and keeping ourselves unstained from the world. So, the issue here at the end of this section is the question, is my religion true or false? Is it real or is it phony? Is my Christian faith simply a profession without being a reality? And he works with this in, in two different ways, very characteristic of the Bible. He gives us some indications of, of what would be 
markers of a false profession of Christian faith, and then what would be markers, evidences of a true profession of Christian faith? What would be false Christianity and what would be real Christianity? What would be empty Christianity? What would be full and rich Christianity? And he does it in a very simple way. Uh, He speaks negatively, and he gives us a couple of indications. He speaks positively, and he gives us another couple of indications. So, I need notes of trial. Has the gospel really taken effect in my life? How would I know? the, the New Testament is not in the business of saying, you are what you say you are. The New Testament is in the business of saying, you may say you are something you're not actually. And for the sake of your salvation and your spiritual growth, you need to know the truth about yourself. So, what would be the marks, the evidences that my profession of real Christianity is actually false. And number one, he says, is that you have an unbridled tongue. The language he's using, a picture of, of a horse, isn't it? And a bridle. And the bit in the horse's mouth and the, the ability of the rider to control the horse. He actually uses the same picture again in chapter 3 when he picks up this theme of how we use our tongues and what we say and applies it particularly to those who preach and who teach. And he he speaks about the the bit and the bridle um, and how how this, this small thing in the horse's mouth can control and dominate the whole horse. And in chapter 3, he's saying the same is true about our tongue, tiny member, only a couple of inches long, perhaps in your case longer or perhaps shorter. But it's so dominant. And he's saying the sign that you are a professor of the Christian faith, but not a possessor of God's grace is that you have an unbridled tongue. Your tongue tends to run away with you. Now, on what presupposition can James say that? On what presupposition can James say that? An inability to master the tongue is an evidence of at least spiritual decay if not spiritual death? And the answer is, and this is true all the way through the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament, when someone is born again by the Spirit of God, it affects their tongue. It affects what we say. And the reason it affects the tongue and what we say, as Jesus taught us, is because in actual fact, our tongues, this is not true anatomically, but it's true spiritually, our tongues are directly connected to our hearts. What comes out of our mouth, says the Lord Jesus, is an index of what is in 
the heart. And what James, who is, at least in my own view, almost certainly Jesus' half-brother, who had therefore lived with him for many years, what James is emphasizing, as the Lord Jesus had emphasized, was that one of the most obvious marks of regeneration is that you begin to speak in a different way and about different things. And your tongue comes under the control of God's Word and God's Spirit. Now, why is that? Why is that? Um, Maybe we can shift over to the Apostle Paul to get the answer. The Apostle Paul teaches us that one of the things that happens when you become a real Christian is that your mouth is shut. Isn't that true? Romans chapter 3, end of his major argument about our sinfulness, he draws this conclusion. He says, when we when we see ourselves before God, our mouths are shut. He says, all of this argumentation I've been using since chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 19, is so that you may realize that before God you have nothing to say, and your mouth is shut, 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 shut. Because, of course, until that point, my mouth has been open. At least metaphorically, it's been open. I've been defending myself. I've been justifying myself. I've been lying about myself to God. I've been arguing back with God. But now when God begins to work and His Word begins to penetrate my thinking and I discover who I really am in His presence, I discover that I have nothing whatsoever to say in my own defense. And, says Paul, every mouth is shut. And I stop speaking. So, something happens to my heart that impacts what happens in my mouth and on my lips and through my tongue. If I can borrow the analogy that James is using here, I become like a wild horse who has been subdued, whose will has been broken, who has become biddable. And actually, when you think about the way Paul argues in the letter to the Romans, one of the things he says is, and immediately new things come out of my tongue. I used to boast about myself, he says. Now my mouth has been shut. And then fascinatingly, he uses exactly the same verb as he'd used earlier on in the letter for boasting, but now it's usually translated rejoicing because I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ, I boast in the hope of the glory of God. I boast in my sufferings. I boast in God Himself. And so, you see, behind what James is saying here is this presupposition that when someone is born anew through the instrumentality of God's Word, when we are humbled under the mighty hand of God and our mouths are shut, and then through the gospel of grace our mouths are opened, then there is a new discipline put into the way we speak uh, in all different kinds of ways. And he's saying that if this is not true of me, if this is not true of me, 
then it raises a serious question as to whether I am really a Christian or not. And it can be a very subtle thing, can't it? Remember Mr. Talkative in Pilgrim's Progress? I think that's the second mention of Pilgrim's Progress today, and I sometimes say you can get to heaven without reading Pilgrim's Progress, but why take the chance? Uh, you remember Mr. Talkative? He, he had all the language. He could, he could talk theology all night long. And uh, you remember how one of the pilgrims was taken in. It's very easy to be taken in. Wow, he really knows his stuff. He can really argue the case. He must surely be right. And uh, he needs to be taken aside and said, you need to see through this person. You cannot really trust this person. And once you grow in a little discernment, you will understand that this tongue is not actually connected to a regenerate heart. You know, I wonder if you've ever been amused by people who say, I love, I love the letter of James because it's so practical. Uh, it's a bit like people saying, I love the sound on the mouth because it's so practical, and it's usually a sign they've never really read it. This is devastating. If you think about yourself, it's devastating. Because interestingly, the unbridled tongue may be a very talkative tongue, but actually it may also be a very silent tongue. What do I mean by that? That when the gospel gets hold of your heart and affects the way you speak, then you do actually begin to speak. Not saying anything is not a sign that you have a bridled tongue because you have a regenerate heart. It may actually be a sign that you're hiding the fact that you don't have a regenerate heart. And you follow the proverb that even a fool, if he keeps his mouth shut, will be thought to be wise, and you've learned the techniques. So, in many ways, this is a very disciplined emphasis that James is bringing to us. The bridled tongue is the expression of the heart of the individual in whom the gospel is expressed through his or her lips. And it's clear that there is a match between the reality of their heart's love for the Lord Jesus and the words that come out of their mouths. Now, that may be why James says that there's another evidence that I am not a true Christian. There's another evidence that my profession is false, and that is that alongside this unbridled tongue, I have a deceived heart. You notice how these two things go together? If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart… And this is interesting because I think this is the third time in these verses that James has warned us against being deceived. Sometimes, of course, the Bible is concerned about others deceiving us. But in this instance, what the Bible is concerned about is that we deceive ourselves. I heard a very interesting illustration of this in the way, and they're listening to a program on, on drug addiction among students, and there was an interview with a student. She was fine. She, she, she felt happy. Why, why are you doing drugs? Is it, is it because you were depressed? Well, she just said she was depressed. No, I was doing it because it made me happy. 
and uh, whole story, I, I couldn't help feeling, Lord, have mercy on this girl because she's heading for disaster, because she's deceiving herself. That's true of every addict, isn't it? It's a very rare addict who doesn't try this process of deceit to others and ends up deceiving themselves. And James is saying the same is true in every area of our lives, that we can, we can deceive ourselves. And it's a very frightening reality for this reason that the person who has made progress in self-deceit does not realize that they are deceiving themselves. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. Um, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with somebody. I met him only once. We sat down together at a conference. After about seven minutes, I wanted to run. Because this man who was a Christian leader had spent those minutes running down other Christians from the very beginning. No name could be mentioned, but his first words about them were negative, pulling down. You know, that's always a sign of something really serious going on in your heart, when the first thing that comes out of your mouth about a fellow believer is negative. That's a really serious position. But you see, I'm 95% sure he thought it was a sign of his spiritual maturity. He thought it was his sign of his discernment. But you can have all the discernment in the world and lack love. You can give your body to be burned, says Paul, but if you lack love, you are zilch. You are nothing. So, what was coming over as a position of discernment and power and superiority actually made me want to run because I felt I was being surrounded by deceit and a self-deceit. And there are other ways in which this comes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it would, if it would happen here, um, but over the years, I've, I've met people here and there and everywhere. Where, where do you go to church? Oh, I sit under so-and-so's ministry. Have you heard people say that? No, they I sit under so-and-so's ministry. Um, and you see, it, it can be one of the simplest expressions of self-deceit. And this is, what, this is what James is concerned about. You can sit under Mr. So-and-so's ministry for years and deceive yourself into thinking that because you sit under his ministry, that's an indication of your spiritual maturity. When the real issue is, what is the fruit of Mr. So-and-so's ministry in your life? I mean, think about it just in terms of the illustration he uses here. How is it, how is it radically transformed the way you speak to others? Because that's what the Word is intended to do to us. I, I hate it when people say that. Because almost always what they're saying is, so you see how mature I am. 
But actually what it often means is, you see how proud I am, how spiritually mature I am. I'm not incidentally trying to sell the book by that anonymous author. <laughs> but you see the point, don't you? Um, because when we sit under the ministry of the Word, it humbles us. It doesn't exalt us. And it's so easy for us to become self-deceived, like, interestingly enough, the man Jesus described at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, who heard the Word but didn't do it. And he was sure he'd built a great house. But then the winds came and the floods came, and we could start singing about it, and the house on the sand fell flat. Why? Because it, it promised so much, but the foundations hadn't been really dug down. And so, James is giving these notes of trial. And as I say, these first notes of trial are evidences that there may be a false profession, that, that I'm not the real deal, and even that I've deceived myself. Now, the psychologists say it's actually possible to get to the point where you've almost completely deceived yourself. You may have moments of doubt But with all respect due to our psychologists and physicians, you don't need a psychologist to tell you that, do you? You know how easily you have been deceived yourself about your spiritual condition. Um, that was one of the things that you discovered. If you, if you went through a transition in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you, you might not have thought about it in these terms, but this is what happened to you. You were undeceived about your self-deception. So, he's speaking, first of all, negatively. He's, he's, he's probing, he's penetrating the evidence of a false profession. But now, happily, he turns to the marks of a genuine profession. But you, you might think he is actually no less devastating, this James. Now, here's the real deal Christian faith. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, a couple of notes of trial that, that I am the real deal. Number one, devotion to the care of the needy. And of course, in this culture, it's certainly still true to a certain extent in our culture, but in this culture, widows and orphans were particularly needy because they had no providers. I don't know if there's such a thing in the free church. There is such a thing in the Church of Scotland as the Widows and Orphans Fund. What's that an indication of? It's an indication of somewhere back in the past when we had wise forefathers leading the charge, they thought, we are bound according to Scripture to give special care to the widows and orphans and to visit them 
and I don't think it's completely accidental, given who James is, that the language he uses here is the kind of language that the Scriptures use about God Himself. Remember how God visits His people in Egypt. That is to say, He doesn't, he doesn't you know, this is, not, this is not Edinburgh, you'll have had your tea. <laughs> no, this is, this is God seeing the needs of His people and visiting them in order to meet the needs. Isn't it true it's one of the real differences between somebody who has wisdom and somebody who needs wisdom? Somebody who needs wisdom turns up at your door and says, is there anything I can do? But the person who has wisdom turns up at your door and says, you know, here's your evening meal. That person knows what to do. And James has been speaking about this. That the, the person who is born again who is the Word of God beginning to direct their lives, begins to pick up new intuitions about what to do, and if one could put it this way, how to visit the way God visits, and to visit the widows and the orphans, families in this case who have nobody to care for them, nobody to provide for them, who are in danger of being left to be flotsam and jetsam in society, not having the kind of social care that has been characteristic of our country to undergird the needs of the most marginalized in society. Um, but presumably, this is just an, just an illustration. Um, you know, widows are in a very distinctive situation, aren't they? Uh, you know, six of you used to go out to dinner, and now there's only five. Tricky situation to handle on both sides. Memories. What do we do now? We actually preferred him to her. And orphans special special needs not in the not in the contemporary sense of special needs but the, these these are children without a father with a mother without a husband without without the model that that people need either because they're boys growing into be men or because they're children who will eventually themselves be parents with their children, and, and the, the evidence of regeneration is that something new moves in my heart of compassion and need and a seeking of wisdom to know what to do for those who are in the most difficult and marginalized of situations. And you can, you can interpret that, apply that to to, to every situation in which we are in, not just widows and orphans, but to the people in your class at school or in, in the hospital or in college or your workmates, uh, the people who are, who are difficult and, and angular, uh, the, the people who are lonely, the people who are not like us. Something happens to a person who is 
brought into new life through the Word of God in their disposition to those who are in need, to those who are difficult, to those that you don't really have the wisdom to know exactly what do I do to help, but you, you visit them, you care for them. That's what it means. You give yourself to them. Um, it's, it's very searching. I, what is my attitude to the elderly? Well, I'm one of them. <laughs> but I said, what's, what's, what's your attitude to the elderly? You're a, you're a young person. What's your attitude to the elderly? Uh, you're a young minister. What's your attitude to the elderly? I remember a very dear friend of mine saying to me one day, I just love visiting older people. And I thought to myself, I don't think you're completely normal as a minister. That's not where the action is. But regeneration is less interested in where the action is and more interested in where the need is. The giving of ourselves. And how do we know this? We know this because the Old Testament tells us. We know this because the Lord Jesus modeled this. He modeled this. So, one of the positive marks of a genuine profession is that we have a new care for the needy. And the other mark that he mentions here of a genuine profession is that we are committed to a separated lifestyle from the lifestyle of the world. So, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, which means really religion that's acceptable to God. That's language that comes from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, isn't it? The sacrifices that are acceptable to God have to be pure and undefiled. And he's saying like Paul in Romans 12, now I want you to give yourself to God in a thanksgiving sacrifice of consecration and it will evidence itself in this way, that you care for the needy on the one hand, and that you separate your lifestyle from the world on the other. You keep yourself unstained from the world. And why do you do that? You do that because Jesus did that. He kept Himself unstained from the world. And He's already in the previous verses, you, you probably have picked up the sense of this, He's already in the previous verses told us in greater detail, what does it mean to keep myself unstained from the world? In verse 21, He says, it means putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receiving with meekness the Word of God which is able to save your souls. Uh, he, he uses the same language, actually, in chapter 2, which, which conveys the idea of, of having filthy clothing. Um, you, become, you become a member of a new family, a new community, a new kingdom. So, he says, you get rid of that, get rid of that filthy clothing. It's not appropriate. It doesn't suit you any longer. 
It's, it, the, this is not the kind of clothing, this is not the kind of, that's not the way we dress in our family. And you see, when you've been born into this new family, then there's a whole new style of life begins to emerge in which you put off this filthy clothing. Actually, outside the New Testament, the same language is used of earwax. Sorry to bring that up. What does earwax do? It stops you being able to hear, and you can see the connection. You receive the implanted Word, and the implanted Word gets rid of the wax that stopped you from hearing the Word of God, and you begin to hear the Word of God, and you realize that the Word of God is teaching you a totally different lifestyle that has its own clothing. Again, Paul speaks about this, doesn't he, in Colossians 3, when he, he uses the same approach. Here are the things you're to put off, and here are the things you're to put on. And he says, now listen, you, you belong to the family of God. You're the elect of God. So, what do you put on? You put on kindness and meekness and gentleness. That's what happens to you. And yes, that's the fruit the Spirit works in you, but it's also a decisive life choice about the clothing you're going to wear. And it truly is a sign of a genuine profession of faith because it goes along, as James has said in verse 21, it goes along with our humble reception of the Word of God. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. And he's urging us to, in verse 23, not just to be a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word. And then he uses this illustration of, of the mirror. He says, look in the mirror and see who you are, and don't forget who you are, and persevere in it. So, here is, here is James' simple picture of the Christian life. The Word of God Christ speaks to me through His Word, and I'm able to say for the first time, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light, follow me. And that living Word brought me into new life. And now that I've been brought into new life, this new lifestyle begins to develop in me and my life is transformed. Actually, Jesus, in a way, set that example, didn't he? You remember how the third of the four songs of the servant in the second half of Isaiah uh, puts into the mouth of the coming Savior these words, morning by morning, you waken me. You, you waken my ear, and I listen to you and I give myself to you. And we follow His example. Uh, yes, we have to do the Word of God. We have to obey the Word of God. But one of the notes that James is striking here is we also, we also need to 
so submit to the Word of God that the Word of God itself does its work, does its work, shapes our thinking, shapes our feeling, shapes our willing, shapes our directions, shapes our emotions, shapes our dispositions, shapes our desires. And as it does that work in us, then the marks of a genuine Christian faith begin to emerge, and a life of holiness, that is to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this. I couldn't help thinking about the first minister of this church when I read these words, and some of you will understand why. Robert McShane is buried just outside. Some of you remember how he wrote in his diary, journal one day, these words, Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. And when I was thinking about these words, I couldn't help but think about words that the great Augustine wrote in his journal uh, when he was certainly not yet spiritually mature. Give me continence, Give me purity, but not yet, not yet. I wonder if that's where you are. Lord, give me this. But as soon as I say that, I think about that widow, I think about that orphan, think about that person in the office, and I say, maybe next week, and I'm deceiving myself. That's what I'm doing. So, by God's grace, as we, as we are under the, we're under the scalpel of Surgeon James here, aren't we? And he's, he's not using all the robotic stuff and the, the keyhole surgery. <laughs> he's using the knife, and it's right into my soul. And he's looking to see whether I'm the real deal or whether I've successfully managed to deceive others so much so that I've deceived myself. And as He does it, as He exposes our, our self-deceit, the Spirit of God does that not in order to destroy us, but to transform us. And it would be a big thing, wouldn't it, to say, Lord, in this area, just in this area. I know you'll work on me for, if it pleases you, years to come, but in this area of my life, undeceive me, and then make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. That truly, that would be real Christianity, wouldn't it? That would, that would make us the real deal. It's kind of overwhelming. Don't you love James? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our mouths are, are shut by Your Word because we recognize whatever dialogues we may engage in with You when we hear it preached and how often we do that 
we know that your word is truth. And we remember how our Savior prayed that through that truth you would sanctify us. And we know that this is the will of the Lord Jesus for us. And we are fearful lest we resist His will because we have professed to trust in Him and to love Him. But we are so weak, we lack wisdom. We are so easily deceived by others and deceive ourselves. And we feel how much we need You to hold on to us so that we can cast ourselves upon You and say, Lord, we are weak, but You are strong. We are sinful, but You are pure. We so easily deceive ourselves, but You know us through and through. We are amazed and astounded that You still love us. And because You have promised to love us to the end, because You loved us from the beginning, Lord, we pray, enable us to yield unreservedly to You. And where we discover the kinds of challenges in the way we speak, the way we respond to others about which we've read in these two verses, as these challenges come to us during the course of this week, we pray that we may taste the wonderful freedom from ourselves that enables us to face the truth about ourselves, that enables us to speak words of grace, and that fills us with love and compassion for those who are lonely and needy in difficulties or in distress. Lord, we are simply praying that You would make us more like Jesus, and we ask this in His name. Amen.